welcome to Beauty Will Save the World. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Susie Solaviv. I am a narrative consultant working for myself, a cradle Orthodox Christian from a convert family, married to Gregory. We have one daughter. We live outside of Boston, and I read way too many books. I'm Rebecca Lonovich. I love the Orthodox Christian Church, and I want to share conversations here about the faith from our hybrid cradle-convert perspective. I'm married to Victor, the best person in the world, and together we have three sons and live in the Pennsylvania wilds. This podcast is about faith and friendship, family and food, feminism, books, Netflix, art, and music. All the things. Most of all, it is about our experiences of beauty that brings us deeper into the love of God. Hi, Susie. Do you want to hear a story about earrings? I 100% wanted to hear a story about earrings. Okay, so I busted out my costume jewelry this week. I usually wear kind of small earrings, studs and such, but I've just been so bored with everything. And I'm using more lipstick, different colors, trying to do my hair more. I, you know, just I'm so bored. And so I got out my larger earrings just for something different, you know? And my second son, Luca, noticed for the first time that I was wearing earrings. He said, Mom, he's like, how are those in your ears? And I said, well, I have a little hole. You know, it holds them in. He's like, you have a hole? I said, sure. And I took the earring out and I let him see. He's like, why do you have that? And I said, oh, you know, so I put my earrings in and I like to. Did it hurt? When I said, when I got it hurt, but it doesn't hurt anymore. Why do you have that? And then he's just like looking at it. He's like... <laughs> Does it, does it help you hear better? And I said, oh. no. I said, no. He said, why do you have that? <laughs> oh, Luca. You know, I actually kind of feel that because when I got my ears pierced when I was 14, my first thought immediately afterwards was, why did I do that? Like, what was the point? <laughs> I mean, it serves no logical purpose. It just looks pretty. Yeah. Well, I, boy, I think I was about the same age. Maybe it just turned, no, I was 16. I was fully 16. Before my mom finally broke down and let me got, get them. I haven't decided actually with my daughter. I feel like 14 was even a little young, but. No. I, let but her it's, have them when her friends have them, so she doesn't feel like a weirdo, Susie. <laughs> okay, fair. That's a legit argument. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's not that I think that, oh, earrings are so sexy, they're going like, to corrupt my child. You know, I don't right. feel that way at all. It's just that putting a hole in any part of your body feels like a big choice. I think it was the winter before I started college. I up and got myself a cartilage piercing, like the upper part of my ear. Oh, Susie, like if I had gotten pregnant, mm. it would not have been a bigger deal in my family. It was a crime. <laughs> my sister was weeping all the way home from the mall. How could you do this? The parents will be so upset. <laughs> you know I'm, so glad I, I'm so glad I got it. And I, I don't really have it anymore, though, because um, earring fell out and it kind of closed up. But it was worth every ounce of pain just to get that effect. 
Yeah, I. <laughs> so I got my cartilage pierced when I turned <gasps> twenty, and I had so wanted nice. it forever. I know, right? <laughs> we really are. I got it, and I loved it, and I was so excited. But I, I did have that same feeling, like why did I do that? This is just kind of a weird thing to do. And so I'm home from college to go to church. Like I came home every weekend. And so my mom and I are walking down the street and I was telling her about this production of Romeo and Juliet I was in. And she turns and looks at me and is like, I hate it. And I was like, well, I thought that setting Verona in Cordoba was maybe not like the most conventional choice, but I don't think it was that bad. She said, no, your ear, I hate it. I was like, oh, I had forgotten. I told her I was going to do it. Like she should have known. (laughs) I told no one. Most of my best choices have been impulsive ones, actually. Ooh, you have to tell us another one now. Well... Um, my first date with Victor. So before we first went out, one of our personers, George, who has since passed, who um, we all love very much, is a very kind man. He had heart trouble and he sort of took a fall on his way to kiss the cross after liturgy. And it was because he was lightheaded and he was fine. And Victor, of course, is right there, like checking on him. Like, you know how he does if there's any sort of medical thing. Oh, 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 you know, he's on top of it. Mm-hmm. Well, George was back up and he kissed across, I guess, and everybody went downstairs for trapeze. And then a little while later, I looked up and Victor was coming down the stairs and I was like, oh, where have you been? I hadn't really realized that he was gone, but he's like, oh, I just went and got George some new nitroglycerin tablets. Just, you know, I saw that his were expired and he kept them. And that's what people keep, you know, if they have a little spell. And so, and I, and I was just so amazed and impressed that he went and did that. He, he was friendly with George, but you know, like, like he was friendly with everybody, but to take his time out. And I just knew that he was always like, well, he still is. He's always hungry. He had waited, hadn't come down for trapeze. He hadn't gotten himself any food. he gone straight to Walmart and got some new fresh nitroglycerin for George to come right back. And because even though George had them, they were out of date and no one asked him to. And it was just who he is, you know, just someone needs something, he will get it for them. And I just, I just, I was so impressed by that. And just, I thought, wow, like what a kind, good person. And so that was a long time before, you know, we, we first went out. That's delightful. (laughs) He is the best. He's the best man in the world. And I mean, you may disagree being married to someone else, but. I was going to say, I think I'm morally and contractually (laughs) obligated to disagree, but. (laughs) But they're cousins. So it runs in the family, right? There you go. Yeah. We lucked out. Yeah. So that's my story. Anyway. Should I share mine now or where do we go from here? No, tell your story. Seize your story, Susie. Seize my story. That's the name of my former signature program, RIP. It's not dead. It's just coming back in a different form. Okay. So let's see. The first time that I realized I was attracted to Greg, Greg and I had been aware of each other peripherally for a very long time because we went to the same church camp. We became friends in 2006. I had just gone up, gone through a breakup with somebody who I thought I was going to marry. And that was really hard. And we hit it off immediately as friends, but he was dating someone else. I'd just gone through a breakup. Like it never really crossed my mind, even though we were such good friends right away. I actually ended up 
actively telling people that I wasn't attracted to him because everybody was like gossiping about us becoming such good friends at camp. We were like really into graphic novels and I don't know, we just understood each other. But the first time I remember being attracted to him was we were, I I was about to go through the second worst breakup of my life, which was actually a more traumatic breakup in some ways. We were at our friend's wedding and he was the best man. And I was there with this guy and I knew I was going to break up with this guy because we were so unhappy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was dancing with Greg at this wedding and I just felt so safe with him. There was this moment of just like knowing, like there's something very right about this. And I promptly freaked out, shoved it to the back of my mind, refused to think about it, went through breakup hell, got in another bad relationship. Uh, (laughs) And then it took another year and a half for Greg and I to get together. But that was the first time I knew something was there. So how long was it from that dance to when you got together? That wedding would have been in fall of 2011. And we got together July 2013. So a little over two years, I guess, or a little under two years. I knew that if we got together and it didn't work out, it would be a huge problem in our social circle. Uh Uh-huh. And so I was very reluctant to go into something that I knew would, by its very nature, be serious right away. And so basically, I had to decide that I was okay with marrying him before we started dating. Wow. Wow, yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I couldn't stay friends with any of my exes. Like, I just couldn't. And so I knew that if we got together and it didn't work out, it would just be disastrous socially. So basically, when we got together, it was very serious right away. And we knew we were getting married, basically immediately. (laughs) This is not something I recommend to people unless uh, you have been friends with that person for seven years. Right. Well, you know, I felt like I kind of had that sense from Gregory on his end, because I think he told us right away that he had a girlfriend. And he had never done that before. Well, he really wanted to do the like put up a photo together thing. Oh, really? On Facebook, yeah. <laughs> and he put up, it's actually very cute. If you go back in his Facebook profile, you'll see the first photo that he posted of us together and said, the reason why I'm so happy lately. For those of you who have never met my husband, he is not an emotional man. <laughs> it depends on what you would call emotion. As far as anger, frustration, Rage. I do feel like that's like... He's not a sentimental man. How's that? <laughs> yeah. He's not an angry man either. He's just like, I would say, I would say like me, like I aspire to be a curmudgeon. That's my, one of my yeah. big goals in life is to like be labeled a curmudgeon. Yeah. So that was us. You know, I don't feel like my impulse decisions tend to be good, but I don't know that my deeply thought out decisions tend to be any better. It's kind of like first impressions. For a long time, I told people like, oh, my first impressions are always wrong. I know my first impressions are always wrong. But now I'm like, what if I just trusted my first impressions and believed that some people were not that great? (laughs) Maybe it would be better for me. So yeah. All right, let's talk about boundaries because we're getting like way off track. Well, you know, this is not one of those stiff, formal podcasts for people who like a conversation and like to have fun. All right, today we're discussing the book 
called Boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend. And we spoke about it briefly last week or the week before as something that I was reading. But the reason I was reading it, gentle listeners, is because we wanted to talk about boundaries on this podcast and I need to read up on it. So now you've got the background. Susie, what does boundaries mean to you? Our life. Their life. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in a couple of codependent relationships. And it took me a long time to understand that boundaries are there to keep everybody safe. I have a lot of tendencies towards people pleasing. And I look for outside approval all of the time. And I, yeah, I basically just wanted to make other people happy because that was the way to make myself feel safe. And there's no blame here for why I felt that way. You know, it's a combination of nature and nurture. Like my brain chemistry was looking for ways to make me feel good. And so deciding what my boundaries are and sticking to them was revelatory. (laughs) Boundaries around my time, um, boundaries around my energy, boundaries around my relationships, how I will and will not be treated. And then most importantly, understanding that when you set a boundary, people will push back against it, but that doesn't mean you were wrong to set it. That was huge. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, actually... I didn't really know much about boundaries. So, of course, I'd heard the word and I thought I sort of had a general idea what people were talking about. You know, basically, like, don't let someone treat you like that, that kind of thing. Or, um, like, no, I can't do that for you right now. I have other responsibilities. So, that's not incorrect, right? Like, that is an aspect of them. But this book goes quite a bit deeper. And I'll just start out by saying I highly recommend it. If you're Orthodox, Christian like us, there's a few things that I think are inaccurate or just not according to our understanding of things. Like, for example, the writer talks about the Trinity. He was talking about boundaries and and like how they're biblical, which is great. But then he brought the Holy Trinity into it. And just don't bring the Holy Trinity into your talk about separation. But otherwise, I, I highly recommend. And I think this should be could be a very good book to go through in a Lenten book study group or something like that, that um, sometimes priests will sponsor. I will just say this. I'm just going to say this because it's my podcast, our podcast, and I can. As far as I can tell, healthy relationships are rare in this world and even more rare in many Orthodox circles. Just going to say it. And so I think this book could be really helpful. It would be a good starting place just to be like, what is like the most basic building blocks of a healthy relationship? What does that look like? And not just like a romantic relationship or something like like that, but just how to be in relationship with each other. And I think one of the best, the very best emphasis in this book and the theme that runs through all of it is being truthful with ourselves. And that that's kind of the basis for what boundaries are. If we're not honest about what we want, if we're not honest about our desires, if we um, keep telling ourselves, you know, that we want this thing when, when we really want something else and we just don't want to be honest about that. And one example, one a good example of that in the book was about pornography use. And I've heard this before that, you know, people maybe think that it's a matter of lust or like desire, sinful desires or something. And then not to say that that's not. But oftentimes, compulsive pornography use 
has a, a deeper reason and has to do with anxiety or fear of intimacy, fear in general. And, and it's not just about looking for some sort of satisfaction in like a short, brief, temporal, transient way, but it's the sort of covering up something that's even deeper and very universal and in many ways harder to heal than even a compulsion like porn use. So the whole book is being honest with yourself, knowing yourself, knowing your desires, knowing your motivations, and that most of the time, the way that we come to that is in secure relationships with others. And it makes really clear, as is in the book, that if you need to start setting boundaries in your life, maybe in your relationships, you're not going to be successful with that unless you're starting from some place of a secure, supportive relationship. So if you're if you know that you need to be being firm with someone or changing some behavior of your own, you probably won't be successful with that until you have established some kind of um, secure attachment with another person, ideally a group of people. And that might be in therapy or with your priest, maybe in confession, if that's available to you, or in a support group, or maybe a very healthy friendship or even romantic relationship. I, I feel like a lot of my um, growth as a person has come actually through my relationship with Victor because he is such a loving, supportive person. And being with him gives me like a, a safe, secure place to like look at myself, look at my motivations, look at my desires and start to be more honest with myself about what's wrong, what's right and what needs to change. So that's, that's a start on what it's about. So I want to actually tie this back into what we were talking about before with relationships. What are some boundaries that you had as you were easing into a romantic relationship or that you had to set with your family or what? Yeah, with my family, especially um, because my parents had an expectation that they would be very involved in our relationship. And I knew that if I valued what the relationship I had with Victor, that it needed to be between us and no one else to be offering input or managing things or setting timelines or things like that. And I'm really surprised that I upped to doing that. But I think a lot of it was because there was no drama in our relationship. There wasn't a lot of, you know, like there wasn't fights or like mind games or manipulations, like not calling or calling or ultimatums. There just was none of those kind of behaviors. It was always just very loving, very, very easy, very supportive. And it made it possible for me to sort of come into adulthood in in a much more um, healthy way. I think for me, we had to set boundaries around our relationships with our mothers, because both of us are very close to our mothers. And it was, you know, it was hard for us to detach. I think it's hard for any parent to detach when they see their kid getting into an important relationship. And when we're wedding planning, I'm proudest of the boundaries I set when we were wedding planning, because I was very clear on what I wanted. Basically, I subscribed to the philosophy that there were three to five hills on which I was willing to die. And then everything else was fine. And so I I set extremely clear boundaries around that, not because I was a bridezilla necessarily. I mean, you'd have to ask other people because I don't know. <laughs> I think I was okay. <laughs> but 
more because I knew how fraught wedding planning could be. And so I wanted to make it clear on the outset that it was our wedding. There were a few things on which we were not willing to compromise. Like it was special and unique. Thank you. I loved our wedding. It was awesome. It was a great day. (laughs) But yeah, it it was ultimately about making a space for us and a space that felt true to us as a way to set up our future together in a space that felt true to us. Also, I mean, like moms, and I say this with all the love in my heart, and I say this knowing that this will be true of me one day, but moms just aren't up on what's done and not done at weddings anymore. (laughs) <laughs> like they're just not and if my daughter ever gets married I know I won't be either <laughs> feel free to play this back to me then I'm not like a regular mom I'm a cool mom that's, <laughs> that's what you'll be like Susie totally pass me my pink sweatsuit <laughs> the lord track suit so you know I I'm really interested in hearing more about your thoughts on boundaries at church oh yeah well I think Going back to what we were talking about last week about, you know, being late to church. And I'm, I just want to emphasize everyone out there. I am the person who is always late to church. That person is me. And so I was thinking of how to sort of reorient us, all of us to reverence, you know, in, in that way. And, and it kind of goes back to another book that I read called You Are What You Love. I think by Oh, James K. A. Smith, I think is his name. It was really good. And a large part of the premise was that we often think of like behavior coming from our mind. Like we decide something and then it goes through our will and into our actions. Like it becomes embodied in that way. But wait, this is what we were talking about <laughs> before. Huh? Circumstances, thoughts, feeling, actions, right. results. Okay. Right. Anyway. But it is often even more the case that what we do with our bodies and in our actions works right back in through our will and forms our habits, which in turn form our minds and hearts. And that really made a lot of sense to me. And it's sort of like an anti-enlightenment way of engaging with the world. But I think it's probably very true. And I was thinking about that. I guess I was thinking about church in that way. Like if we train ourselves to be physically present on time, ready to participate in the liturgy in a reverent way, like ideally that would work its way into our will and into our hearts. And like setting the behavior, like sets the soul. And I think if we thought maybe some more about things, church things in that way, we would be willing to set boundaries in our behavior or the church would be willing to set boundaries for our behavior. And not in like a shaming way, like, you know, like (laughs) we've all all crossed a machushka one time or other or some such person, Mm -hmm. you know, and gotten the, and gotten the, the stern once over. But I mean, I'm sure that has its place, but more just like, this is, this is what's right. So we will set things up to help us all do what's right. So like, that, that, that was kind of like my thought process behind, like, you know, having sometimes when the doors are open to the church and then having other times when they're closed and not having people going in and out between. It's not to like shame anyone into being better people, but more to just reorient us 
to to the reverence and and realization of what the liturgy is, you know. So so yeah, I think that was just one way. And then as far as like relationships, you know what? It's I haven't actually witnessed this much. Maybe like here and there, I, I was actually really fortunate to be for a long time part of a parish that did not have contentious parish meetings. But I know that's it's a common thing, and I think there must be a way that we can set boundaries in that way. And just if people are going to show the worst of themselves in the church, you know, about things for the church that we do for the love of God, I think that we need to be able to set some parameters on that. And just we can't force people to behave one way or another. You know, that's not what boundaries are for, to like manipulate people or to force behavior. It's not possible anyway. But I think maybe there should be a way that that comes to an end, like the meeting comes to an end, or um, perhaps the person, you know, who is engaging in this behavior is removed from the council. Often, I'm sure people are, you know, feeling very strongly and passionate, but, you know, we're Christians, like there's a way to express yourself that is respectful and reverent to other people. And riotous, angry parish council. It's the fact that it's such a trope is a problem. We shouldn't be doing that. So that's those are just two things. Do you have any thoughts on that, Susie? Um, I guess my thoughts on boundaries and church have more to do with the amount of control you give over to the church versus personal autonomy. So I think we've touched, have we touched on the idea of spiritual father versus confessor before? No, we never talked about that before. Oh, okay. Well, this is extremely important to me. So my parents, when they converted, they converted into the Pontelamonite church. So that was a group that still exists, Holy Transfiguration Monastery in Brookline. The abbot was accused of sexual misconduct and subsequently left Rocor. And then they've been kind of bishop hopping since then. But they were also a very controlling group. My parents ended up giving them a lot of money. They, they wanted to have a lot of control over families and people's behavior and so on and so forth. And I've encountered other groups like that, canonical ones, just like within a parish where it's been a very controlling environment. And so for me, it is important to set up a boundary between home life and parish life and not try to have them be the same thing to recognize that I am not a monastic. My relationship to the person I go to confession to is not the same as a monk's relationship to an abbot or a spiritual father that my priest, while yes, has some authority over me, does not have complete authority over me. And I think when you come in, like you were talking about before, like people read these advanced monastic texts and they don't understand that they're written for monastics and not lay people. And they end up putting themselves, frankly, in spiritually dangerous situations because they think that's how they're meant to live. And it's just not like it's honestly, like, I think it's not very humble ultimately to try to live that way either. Like, I think people go in with a, with a sense of humility, but like, you know, I, from my observation, and I'm somewhat familiar with this in myself, I think it's often people look around and they see other people that maybe aren't living up to what they think a pious Orthodox life should be or something like that. And they're like, oh, I'm going to do it better. And I think, <laughs> I think when we are doing that, we have to be careful. In my mind, I see some sort of distinction between that kind of behavior and like maybe stricting up with ourselves about 
being late to church or something. I don't know if there really is a separation. Like to me, those are different. It's like about piety and respect versus like one upmanship, maybe. Mm-hmm. But but I don't think that people necessarily consciously think of themselves as like I'm going to be better than all these other people. But that does seem to often be the attitude, like the the vibe you get in those sort of environments. You know, mm-hmm. usually ones that sort of spring up around monasteries. So stuff like that. Um, so the the big example that comes to mind, honestly, when I'm thinking about like, no, actually, I'm not going to go there. Sorry, I'm not going to go there. Ultimately, like for me. But you will after we stop recording, right, Susie? A hundred percent. For me, like God gave us brains and free will. And I think he wants us to use them. And I don't think he wants lay people to live in unquestioning obedience to the priest. No, no, that's, I think that's very spiritually dangerous. That's what's important to me, like, is being able to say, this is my role in life, and this is the priest's role in my life, and it's important and respected, but the boundary exists as a container to make that relationship the most effective it can be. And so if either of us breaches that container, then it's not going to work and it's not going to be selfific. Right. Yeah, I really hear you about that. I've been fortunate not to be in those kind of relationships with the priests that I've had. I think all the priests that I have gone to confession to, it's been a very confessor, parishioner dynamic, not like I'm your spiritual father, I'll help you direct your life kind of thing. And I kind of wonder a little bit if um, in the olden days or in an ideal situation, perhaps a spiritual father was sort of like what a therapist is now. Hmm. Someone that you can be very honest with and like talk about your struggles and someone that will give you direction and advice and help. And ultimately, coming back to what was in this book and what's been a theme in my life lately being honest with yourself like truly knowing yourself not in a you know self-centered or like self-glorifying way but like turns you that turns you towards repentance you know yes so the big hallmark i think of an unhealthy relationship a boundary breaking relationship is when people tell you repeatedly and i'm not saying just once or twice i'm saying repeatedly not to trust yourself never to trust yourself Oh, yeah, I know. That's a big red flag, guys. Everybody out there. (laughs) That's a thing in monastic life because it's a different kind of life. It's a communal lifestyle and there are different temptations. And yes, absolutely, there are times when we should push back against ourselves. But there's a difference between like not fully trusting yourself and ignoring your gut. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think some people's maybe first impulses, probably all of us in some way, like our first impulses or our gut reaction in many situations is disordered in some way. But the solution to that is not to ignore it, but to experience healing, right? So if you ignore it, you're not going to know what's even wrong. Um, as far as healing goes, that happens in relationship, like, you know, in relationship, which means trust which means you're able to be vulnerable, which means that you can speak honestly and be received with love, not just sort of shut down by being told, don't trust yourself. That doesn't open up the relationship. That doesn't open up communication. It just shuts it down, right? Oh, can I actually jump in here with a, a romantic relationship example? 
So I was in this non-relationship with this guy years and years ago, right before I met my husband, actually. And he was not the right person for me. I wish him well. I don't want to, you know, throw him under the bus or whatever. Okay, now I'm apologizing. (laughs) I shouldn't do that either. But anyway, I was over at his house and we were having dinner. And I happened to mention that Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah was one of my favorite songs. It is no longer one of my favorite songs, FYI. And so he pulled out his guitar and he played the song. He had just told me that he didn't want to be in a real romantic relationship with me. It had seemed like things had been heading in a certain direction. He wasn't comfortable with that and yada, yada. And then he pulls out this guitar and he has candles lit and he sings this song. And then I just looked at him when it was over. He had made me dinner with like edible flowers in it. I looked at him and I was like, I got to (laughs) go. And he then gave me this big hug. And I was, I was like, are you going to let go? And he said, you're not ready to let go yet. Oh. And, or you're not done with this yet. And I was like, right. (laughs) I, knew instantly that this this guy, whatever he was trying to do, whatever he was getting out of this was not okay. I don't know if he needed me to look up to him or what, but like he needed me to be enthralled by him. Hence the, oh, I forgot the best part. So when, oh oh yeah, there's more. So he finishes playing and he looks up at me and I said, that was, and he said, sexy. And I said, I was going to say manipulative, but sure. Wow. <laughs> and then he gives me this hug. And then I walked out and I basically never called him again. <laughs> because he violated a boundary. Like he created a container for the relationship and then he broke out of it. And he was trying to tell me what I was thinking and feeling. And that was not a never fall for a guitarist, Rebecca. <laughs> Check. Check that one off the, off the don't do list because I didn't. I'm going to add that I'm very happy that relationship didn't work out. <laughs> we got that from the, from the story. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I just, there's one important point. There's, there's a lot more that, to this book than what I've been able to articulate. But one other point that really made me think was that boundaries can't be secret. So at some point or other, ideally early on, you do have to express them. And I am the worst about this. I can think about boundaries and like what would be a good boundary and like purpose to maintain that boundary, I don't know, all day and night, all 365 days a year. But when the time comes and the boundary is crossed, instead of speaking clearly about it, I say nothing and they won't do any good unless they are articulated, which it seems like a a no brainer, but that's where I am, Susie, as a a no brainer. (laughs) I think that was really good to talk about actually. And I'm really glad that you talked more about your experience, especially that spiritual obedience kind of idea, because I've never seen it not go bad. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that we just don't have the, honestly, I don't think we have the spiritual heritage for it here in America. Like, you know, that's a deep, deep tradition and it is fostered in long, deep 
usually monastic communities where many, many, many men have lived holy, saintly lives and others have learned from them. And we don't really have that heritage here in America. And that's, I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of, but I just think that our work is different. You know, we have to learn to think for ourselves, not in a, in a prideful way, but in a taking responsibility way. You know, you can't shove that off on someone else. And I think that's the thing about monks. They're not putting off responsibility. They're taking on responsibility when they enter the monastic community and when they, you know, submit to a spiritual father. It's not them, like, running away from making choices or thinking through difficult decisions. It's taking that on. Because there's nowhere that you can run away from yourself. And I, I think often, like, underneath it all, that is what lay people want to turn their lives over, all their decisions over to a spiritual father, right? That's so what they're looking for is, like, to take that burden of responsibility off of themselves, hand it over to someone else, and then be like, oh, I'm good, you know? I can't mess up now. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, on that note, what was your weekly highlight? Well, last... Tuesday, Victor got off early and he didn't have any work to finish up at home and suggested that we go for a drive to Cook State Forest, which is about an hour from us, kind of like northwest. And so we all loaded up in the pickup truck and it's a really beautiful place. It's an ancient forest. It's not been, I think it's like a, what do they call it? Virgin forest. It's not ever been forested, you know, for, um, timber oh wow it's very old and you know very beautiful and we just sort of got like a quick drive through we didn't get out because we hadn't really made plans um to do that but i want to go back and there's um the clarion river runs close by and you can go um tubing or kayaking down it and i'd like to do that too sometime soon and Lots of like restaurants and like fun places that would normally be open but because of the COVID aren't a lot of the restaurants were, but not the go-karts or whatever, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it was just nice to be out and just enjoy those long summer nights, you know, not have to be anywhere to get kids to bed for school or anything. There's so much beautiful country around here. We live in what's called the Pennsylvania wilds and it's not very populated. And there's a lot of beautiful forests and forests with rattlesnakes, if you're interested in that, <laughs> or forests without them, if you're, that's more your speed. Cook State Forest is one without very many. So that was a nice thing we did. What about you? So we're part of a COVID pod, germ (laughs) pod, with another family. And so we had a very small namesake party for my daughter on Saturday for St. Elizabeth, the new martyr. And she was just beside herself with excitement. Like she was over the moon excited. In (sighs) fact, she was so excited that she woke up at 1.30 in the morning the next morning to play with her new toys. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And, like, all I wanted was to give her a really great day because she didn't get a birthday party this year. And so I feel like we succeeded, and that was my highlight. Oh, that's lovely. Little Ella, many years. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, stay golden, pony boy. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk to you soon. Don't forget to follow us, rate, review, subscribe, share. Thank you each and every one for joining us today. 
We would love to continue this conversation with you on our Patreon-linked Slack channel. We have the Patreon so that, for once, the trolls will have to pay a toll to spew obscenities and call us prostitutes. But we want to cultivate a community there that we can grow towards in-person, real-life friendships. Please share the podcast with someone you think will like it. And if you liked it, please rate it on iTunes or wherever. If you did not like it, please keep your opinions to yourself. Also, please pray for us. Thanks and talk with you all soon. Bye.